Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest this week is the legendary producer, John Boylan. First of all, let's talk about best practices for submission to Spotify playlists. Now, everyone knows that finding a place on a Spotify playlist, especially a large one, can make your career. But there is a way to increase your odds when you're making your submission. So what's the very first thing? Well, you should build a proper profile, and that includes photos, all of your social, and a 1,500-word bio. Yes, you get 1,500 words. You should use as many as you can because more is better And that's usually the case with everything online. It just makes searching a whole lot easier when there's a whole lot more text there. And of course, what's really important is to verify yourself as an artist on Spotify. So we've talked about this in the past, but you can find out how to do that online. It's pretty easy, but it's essential. You have to do it. The next thing is you need an audience. Yeah, you're never going to get a placement on any Spotify playlist if you don't have an audience. It doesn't have to be large, but you do have to have somebody. So how do you do this? Well, one way is you can send a dedicated Spotify newsletter out to all of your fans in your mailing list and make sure you have a call to action. The call to action is follow me on Spotify. Listen to me on Spotify. You can also ask them to pre-save tracks that aren't released yet. So in other words, you tell them that they're coming and don't forget Whenever you release something on Spotify, you have to give them about a two-week notice in order for everything to work the way you'd like them to. In order to get placement on Spotify playlists, the best thing is give them plenty of warning, and that means your fans as well. Another thing is include a follow button on your website. And if you have any playlist collaborations, make sure you share those as well. Remember, no fans equals no playlist action. And if you do have a fair number of fans, any new tracks that you release go directly to the release radar playlist that those fans see immediately. The third thing is, on your playlist submission, you have 500 characters to make your pitch. And the big thing is, use all of those characters. The more you use, once again, the better off you are. So if you only use 300, then you decrease your chances of a curator finding your submission or even taking it seriously. More is better in this case. And the last thing is make sure your tags are right. Tag for mood, genre, and instruments used. Another thing is if you have a significant promotional budget for marketing, make sure you mention that. Now, if you don't have one, it's best to not say anything at all. But if there is some money behind you for marketing, for promotion, make sure that it's indicated there because that does influence playlist curators. So, we all want our music to be on Spotify playlists, and as we know, it can be a big deal in breaking a career, but follow these steps, and it will increase your odds. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyoinnercircle.com. Don't forget about my online courses on mixing, production, branding, and music business success at bobbywosinskycourses.com. Also, get an expert analysis and objective opinion of your songs and mixes as a member of my Hitmakers Club. Go to hitmakersclub.com to learn more. Now, I know many of you are buying new computer gear 
And if you're like me, you're befuddled by the USB-C ports, which suddenly meant that you had to go out and buy adapters and buy new peripherals and all that stuff. And I bet you thought, wait a second, we already had a couple different flavors of USB and it was getting faster. Why do we have to change? Well, of course, USB-C is better because now there's power going through it and it can be a lot faster. But there's also kind of an untold story behind this. USB-C came as a result of an EU regulation where they wanted a single interface cable. Now, they didn't specify USB-C specifically, but they did specify that there should be one interface cable. Why? Well, it turns out that discarded cables and discarded chargers really were piling up in the dump. Every year, there's 51,000 tons of discarded chargers alone. So basically, this was here to save the environment from used cables and discarded chargers. The whole idea was one type of cable should be enough. It's true that USB-C is a pretty wonderful interface. Like I say, it carries power. It can be incredibly fast, but there are some downsides. First of all, you have to understand that USB-C cables can be passive or they can be active. If they're active, they have a chip inside the connector itself, and that determines the speed and the power. So you can have two USB-C cables. One could make your peripherals go blazingly fast and pass power through to power up your laptop, while the other one will not pass power through and, in fact, will slow everything down. If you think you're getting a deal on cheap USB-C cables, and this goes for Thunderbolt too, what that really means is you're probably getting slower speeds and you may even have an overheating problem. So when it comes to USB-C, 7,000 companies have already signed on. A lot of you have Apple laptops out there, as I do, and you probably think, well, Apple's been on top of this for a while, but the fact of the matter is they've actually fought this tooth and nail to have to put this on iPhones. And now it looks like they're finally going to have to acquiesce to the EU in order to do that on a generation that's soon to come out. So USB-C pretty soon will be on everything. It's going to be better for us all. It's painful making the transition. It's expensive making the transition in many cases. But I think in the end, it's going to make our electronic lives a whole lot simpler. My guest today is John Boylan, who started in the business as a member of the burgeoning folk scene in the village in New York City that spawned legends like Bob Dylan, Joan Baez, and The Love and Spoonful. He then went on to become a songwriter in the famed Brill Building and eventually became a huge contributor to the genesis of the Southern California country rock scene in the early 70s. John has a long list of stellar production credits that include Rick Nelson, The Association, Linda Ronstadt, Boston, Charlie Daniels, The Little River Band, and many more. He's also worked extensively in children's music and television, where he won a Grammy for his work on the ABC primetime special, The Muppets' Elmo Palooza. During the interview, we spoke about growing up in the original folk scene in New York City, putting together the band that would later become the Eagles, seldom heard facts about recording the band Boston, and much more. I spoke with John via Skype from his office in Los Angeles. Let's go back to when you first started. How did you get into the business? 
I started, of course, playing in a rock band uh, in college. I was at Bard College, and my brother and I had a little band there called the Ginger Men. And we decided to go down to the village and in the summer and try to – we got a gig at the Night Owl right away because uh, we had sort of an in. We were friends with the drummer and, and, the, and John Sebastian and the Love and Spoonful, and they were playing there. They hadn't broken through yet. So we got to be third on the bill there. And then when a year and a half later, when we graduated, we came back and, and then we got a more regular gig at the Night Owl. Um, and a- after a while, that gig didn't pay enough. We got offered for a much better gig uptown. So we took that. But unfortunately, the club burned down during the second set one night and we lost all our instruments. So my brother and I are trying to figure out what to do. The band kind of fell apart. And uh, my brother, being more aggressive than I was at the time, went to John Sebastian's production company, Koppel Rubin, Koppelman and Rubin Associates, and got us an audition to be staff songwriters there. And we were hired. 50 bucks a week, cubicle, the whole nine yards, Brill Building. You know, it was, it was at 1650 Broadway, which was the other Brill Building. And there we were, you know, with Neil Diamond and Carol King and everybody. Uh, uh, Charlie and Don's staff consisted of my brother and me, uh, Russ Teitelman and Lowell George in the West Coast office, uh, Alan Gordon and Gary Bonner, who wrote Happy Together, uh, John Sebastian, Tim Harden, some really, you know, it was a heady time. And we used to make demos downstairs in the basement in the fall of 67 to produce his next album and that's how i got started your production work then came from a demo that ricky nelson liked he liked the way the demo sounded you know i mean i i was making them on the fly for very little money not we had to you know you had very low budgets but i was a musician i had been in a band so i knew what i was doing i had a good engineer there and uh, and Ricky liked the way I was doing it. So he hired me out of the blue. I mean, the guy really, I owe my career to him. You started with producing with Ricky Nelson, but that quickly became much more than that, right? You did the association and there was a, a number of them, right? Mostly on the West Coast. When did you come West? Well, I first came in 67, produced Ricky. And then I did a second project with him in 68. And then uh, a song that my brother and I wrote uh, became a turntable mid-chart hit for the Sunshine Company. And so I decided uh, that my future was in L.A. So in the beginning of 1969, I moved to L.A. And the first gig I got was to produce the association for a movie soundtrack, a movie called Goodbye Columbus. And that record did quite well. So that got me going. The, the next um, gig I got was a band I really liked called the Dillards. Mm, They were so influential on California country rock. Nobody gives them the credit they deserve, but all their harmonies were what people like Crosby, Susan Nash and the Eagles all copied the Dillards harmony style, you know, that kind of tight three-part bluegrass thing. And uh, so I did an album with them for Electra that did pretty well. And that, by that, that time I pretty established in LA and that's when I met Linda. Good. Well, let's go there then. So how did you meet Linda Ronstadt? Well, I was I met her at the Troubadour in early uh, 1970, or maybe it was late 69. I don't remember exactly. And 
uh, I was introduced to her by the wife of one of the members of the association, and I was a big fan. You know, I told her I loved different drum, and she had a hit out at that time called Long, Long Time. And I said, wow, that's a great vocal. And she said, you're the one that did that Ricky Nelson album of the Bob Dylan song. With the Bob Dylan song, she belongs to me. I said, yeah. And she said, you put that band together for him, the Stone Canyon band. I said, yeah. She said, well, can you do that for me? And of course, yes, put me in coach, you know. <laughs> and uh, the, the band we put together, of course, became the Eagles. You know, we put our heads together and started hiring people. Uh, I had met Don at the Troubadour Bar. He had he looked at me and said, you're John Boyle. And I said, yeah. He said, I sent you an album for Linda. By then I was working with her uh, to produce. You know, I was producing or she had hired me for that as well. And uh, I said, he said, I never heard from him. He said, I said, yeah, a little problem. You didn't put a return address or anything. I said, I liked the album. It was his band. They were called Shiloh. And he had marked one song that he thought Linda might cut. It was a really good song, but it wasn't for Linda. And he said, yeah, you know, you're probably right. And that's how I, I met him. And I said, look, we're trying to put a band together for Linda. By this time, it's 71. And uh, Linda had fired her manager over a some f fraudulent airline ticket problem. And uh, so we were trying to put this band together quickly to go on the road for dates she already had. And so I said, Don, would you like to, to come on the road? Linda had already heard him and liked him. So she was on board with that. And he said, well, I can't go. I have my band. I have a gig at uh, the Golden Bear down in Huntington Beach. I said, you know what? I was, I was there two nights ago to see Poco, and you're not on the upcoming list. He said, wait a minute. And he went next door to the payphone at Tana's. And he called his then manager, was, was Kenny Rogers' wife, Margo. Uh -huh. And she admitted that they didn't have the gig. So he came back, he said, I'm in. So I hired him right then for 250 bucks a week. Wow. And we had Glenn Fry on board. And then I filled in on a keyboard and extra guitar. And we had two other guys that didn't end up staying. And we went on the road in April of 71. And what? Since Don and Glenn had the room together, we couldn't afford individual rooms. Not, you know, they started to get the idea of forming a band together. And uh, that's when the beginning of the Eagles. So they were with Linda for how long? Not very long at all. I mean, obviously, they wanted to get going on a band. It was less than six months. In fact, the original Eagles only played behind her all as one unit once. That was at Disneyland. Otherwise, it was, you know be two of them or three of them or whatever because i brought randy and i had randy had been a member of the stone canyon band but he had left key and i knew that so i i told glenn and don listen this is the right guy to get for the eagles and they agreed and hired and basically linda suggested bernie ledden and that was the original eagles they only played together behind linda that once it was an extended gig but that was it. Otherwise, they played individually. They played behind her a lot for, you know, over a six or eight month period. Uh -huh. When you had Linda in the studio, were they playing behind her or, or was it other people? Where possible, it was them and other people. Uh -huh. I mean, I used all kinds. I had a coterie of musicians I would use at that time. You know, members of bands, people I knew, uh, some high-end studio guys here and there, you know. Although we tended to shy away from the 
wrecking crew type people because we were trying to get something different, you know? Yeah. So mostly I used people around the Troubadour bar. <laughs> oh, those were the days. <laughs> Man, it was very heady time. I was so fortunate because it, I got to, to be with two of those situations. The whole country rock thing at the Troubadour with Jackson and Eagles and Linda and everybody. And before that, I was in the village at the time of Bob Dylan and, um, you know, all the, the folk thing and the, uh, you know, Love and Spoonful and all the bands that came out of the village at well, that time. So I got, I got a chance to be in two palpable scenes that had big influence on American music. John, what was the comparisons between both of those scenes? Was there something that was similar between both of them? It was totally similar. I mean, it was entirely different in content, but the paradigm was identical. You know, a bunch of people with common musical interests supporting each other. Uh, the great French writer Alexander Dumas used to bring writers together. They met in a bell tower. And they would read each other's work to each other and support each other. Uh, the, the French word for bell tower is Sanac. So he called his, that's what he called his writers group. And that's what these things were. These people were competing, but supportive of each other. Very supportive. I mean, it was, it was not doggy dog at all. You know, in the village, it was Dylan and Tom Paxton and Bill Oaks and all those people, you know, and Joan Baez, everyone was around there then playing in those clubs, the Bitter End, the Gaslight, hanging out at the Kettle of Fish, you know, all the scene. And then the Night Owl scene with all the bands that came out of there, Love and Spoonful, the Blues McGoos, the, the Flying Machine, which was James Taylor and Cooch. Tons of people came out of that scene. That's where I first met James, and we've been friends ever since then as well. So they were identical in paradigm, but course entirely different in content mm, yeah let's jump up a little bit to boston because that was so huge in the music business and still is so influential how did you get involved with the band again a lot of luck you know <laughs> let's face it people don't acknowledge this enough but being in the right place at the right time and getting lucky is a big part of the situation paula hearn who had been a promotion man at Atlantic and then at Asylum. And I had worked with him because I was managing Linda from 71 to 73. After she fired Herbie, uh, this is a kind of separate story, but after Linda fired the manager with the airline tickets, um, she asked me what to do. And I said, look, I know Peter Asher, who's managing my friend James Taylor, He'd be a great manager for you and I'll be the producer. She said, great. We went to, went to meet Peter. She actually knew him already. And we asked, he said, yeah, this is in the spring of 71. And then two weeks later, he called me back. He said, look, I've got bad news. James's sister, Kate, I want, needs me to manage her. James feels that it would be a conflict. I'm afraid I can't take on Linda as a client right now. So she asked me to fill in. And I, I wasn't really, I was a record producer, you know, but... I did. Uh, I, I, I signed on for two years, after which Peter became available because Kate decided she didn't want to do it after all. And then Peter took over very happily for Linda. And he was a great manager for her for most of her, her career. I took over again when he retired in 1999. I don't know if he retired then, but that's when I took over again. Mm -hmm. She came and said, uh, 
would you come back and help me? I said, sure. By that time, I think I was way more capable of being a manager than I was earlier. Mm -hmm. But I did do a lot of things for it during those two years. I got her off capital and onto asylum. I got her on the Neil Young tour in 73, which really broke her out of the, uh, you know, the Troubadour club circuit and the college circuit and into bigger and better things. And I did produce her first platinum album. So it's, uh, you know, it worked well, but I think everything worked well in the end. So there I was, I was producing, uh, I was off being a record producer again, and I was producing bands like Pure Prairie League and uh, Brewer and Shipley, artists like that. But while I had been working with Linda during from 71 to 73, I met this fellow, Paul Ahern. He'd been promo for Atlantic and Geffen had hired him to be a promotion man for Asylum. And so we were working with Linda because she was now on Asylum. And I became friends with him. And in about 1975, he brought me this cassette he had and he played me Tom Schultz's demo. He says, I, I don't have a deal on this. People are passing uh, on it. And I listened. I thought it was phenomenal. I mean, the guy Scholes knew he was a really kind of a genius. Uh, he, he had a master from MIT. He was working for Polaroid, helping to design their ill-fated instant movie camera. He, he had this band. The only thing he was a little shy on was recording acoustic instruments. Everything else he had down. So I uh, met with him. And Mahern and I went down to San Diego to the uh, CBS Records convention. And we went to one of the guys who passed originally, Lenny Pizzi. And we, we said, look, this is a great package. We can, you got to hear this. And Steve Popovich and Lenny Pizzi said, yeah, you're right. So with Ahern and his partner and me attached, we signed them to Epic. And as soon as... I met Scholes for Sirius back in Boston. I realized it had to be a co-production. First of all, because he had so much already done and figured out, number one. Number two, he was not going to leave Polaroid. Hmm. He had his personal reasons for not wanting to quit his day job. And obviously, I couldn't sit around Boston. So I went back to, I, I my engineer flew in. We rented a bunch of mics that he didn't have and some equipment he didn't have from Hanley Sound and put it in his home studio in Watertown. And he would go to Polaroid every day, come home, his wife would make him some dinner and they'd go down in the basement and overdub guitar parts. In the meantime, I took the rest of the band to LA. I recorded two or three songs, only one of which made the album with the band without Tom. Then when he was finished all his work, I hired a uh, truck, a remote recording truck from Providence, Rhode Island I had to do this off the books because of union issues. And they came to Watertown, ran a snake through Scholz's window. We transferred the 12 tracks to 12 tracks on a 24 track on a 3M79. And then Scholz took a leave from Polaroid, brought the tapes, came to LA. And we did all the vocals at Capitol Studio C. We did percussion there. I remember one percussion over that we did on More Than a Feeling. We had to do some hand claps. And I remember going into the men's room at Capitol, going in there, you know, for whatever. And I thought, geez, the ambience in here is great. You know, I clapped my hands and it had that great men's room sound, you know. Mm -hmm. So when we wanted to do the hand claps, we put a KM84 in the men's room, ran the 
wired down the hall to Studio C. And Scholes and I and the engineer, he brought the remote into, did the hand claps from the men's room at Capitol by remote on more than a thing. And you actually hear the, the nice room ambience on the hand claps. But we finished all the overdubs at C. And then we, Scholes and I and an engineer named Warren Dewey, the second engineer named Steve Hodge, who later went on to work for Jimmy Jam. Uh, but we went to the Westlake mix room on Wilshire and mixed the album there. And then I flew back to New York and delivered it to Epic and played the whole first side at the singles meeting. And they went nuts. They knew what they had right away. Wow. Very cool. Uh, Scholes and I are co-producers on it. I, You know, he, he deserves way most of the credit. I acted in the old role of a producer there, which is facilitator, you know. I'm, I don't think there were many people who could have made it happen. You know, a lot of producers would have wanted to take over. But I quickly realized that was the wrong, wrong thing to do. Were all the arrangements his? Oh, yeah. Pretty amazing for someone who never made a record before. Yeah, but let's face it, he'd been working on it for a while. I mean, first of all, he was, you know, naturally talented as hell. And second of all, he was scientifically brilliant. Mm-hmm. So it isn't any wonder. He came up with so many innovations, man. He had an analog bucket brigade device that he designed himself. He designed a, a resistance, variable resistance that he made from scrap parts that he put in between the 100-watt uh, Marshall head and, the, and the, the speaker cabinet so that he could crank it up to uh, 10 and not have it be very loud, you know. Mm-hmm. He later marketed that as the what he called the power soak from polaroid he had gotten a special kind of oscillator called a mini ubiquitous uh, which was a special oscillator that would allow you to freeze a waveform then he would use a polaroid to take a picture of the waveform and design circuits to emulate and that later became a rock man those that circuitry that he designed using that special oscillator wow so the guy's brilliant yeah, I said. I mean, after the first album, he had no need of me at all, and I was then just the executive producer. After that, by then, by the way, I had accepted an offer from Epic to go and work there, so I spent eleven years as vice president of A and R at Epic. After that, well, let's go there now that you mention it, because it must have been a different experience for you suddenly being in the corporate world. Yeah, except that at that time. Of any corporate world, the two that stood out as being very artist-friendly and very creatively oriented, CBS and Warners. Warners under Lenny and Moe and Joe, and Bruce Lundvall and Walter Yetnikoff and everybody running CBS, all understanding that creative people should be the be-all and end-all here. And it was a great place to be, I don't mind telling you. Uh, epic during the years I was there it was a phenomenal experience for me. Look who we signed. I mean, Alexberg signed Charlie Daniels and I got to produce him. Look at the records that came out of that. I did eight albums with him, starting with Devil, went down to Georgia. We signed the Jacksons, you know, and Michael. Hmm. We signed Ario Speedwagon. We signed, you know, I mean, the list goes on and on. We were the tail wagging the dog over there at CBS. It was just great. I worked with some very cool people there and enjoyed every minute of it. 
I took the parachute in the Sony sale in oh. the 80s. And I think I might have uh, stayed a little longer, but I was a little nervous about when that idiot, forget his name, sold after Mr. Paley died. His heir apparent was a Tish, who's a uh, finance guy. He didn't get it at all. So he sold the record division to Sony for two cents compared to what it was worth. I mean, it was awful. And so I, I was a little unsure what was going to happen after that. And in fact, I would have had to leave Epic and change Columbia because of changes in what was going on. So I, I went independent again at the time of the Sony sale. Tell me about Little River Band. So they're from Australia. How did you meet them? Because that seems to be, yeah, it's the other side of the world. Right, and they're not on CBS. So my lawyer who uh, negotiated my original CBS contract, he got CBS to recognize that I was a record producer and that it was possible I wouldn't have all the right acts at Epic, you know. So they got me the right to do one outside project a year. And for the first project, Rupert Perry at Capitol, who's a friend of mine, I knew him from the Brewer and Chipley uh, time and from when I worked there with Linda too, uh, called me and he said, how'd you like to go to Australia? And I said, yeah, what do you have in mind? He said, well, they actually need somebody to give some lectures in New Zealand and you get a free trip to Australia and they'll get a squirt around and look at some bands there. I said, great. So I went down to New Zealand, this was in 75, and I looked around, saw some great things. I saw Split Ends, which became Crowded House. I saw all kinds of great acts in New Zealand, gave a couple of uh, lectures, and then I got the trip to Australia. I went around and looked at bands there, and I saw this band, Mississippi, that became Little River Band. And I came back and Rupert said, you know, about a year later, Rupert said, Little River Band. I said, I, I don't never heard of them. He said, well, they were Mississippi. I said, I heard them. What are they up to? He said, well, we put out an album, but we think we need to get an American producer involved. Are you interested? I said, hell yeah. I went to see him at Santa Monica Civic. This time I'm at C by this time I'm at CBS. And I picked them right away as my outside act. And I went down to Melbourne and in the January of 77 and did the uh, Diamantina cocktail album with Help Is On Its Way and Happy Anniversary. And then I did three albums in a row, every year an album down there. I had six top 10 singles in a row. Had a great run with them. Got along great with them. They were really good. Best friends still with the lead singer. And uh, I got opened up to a whole new musical world down there. It was great eye opener for me. And of course, CBS got active down there as well. So, uh, it was, that was just great. And then years later, uh, in 88, Irving signed the Little River Band after the Capitol contract had, and brought me back in another album with them for MCA in 88. Their albums are classic, and the hits that you did with them are still played, and they're still great. They haven't aged. They thank you very much. You know, they get used in movies. It's it's just a wonderful thing it's it's because first of all they had good songs let's face it they weren't exactly an edgy rock band or anything but they had great songs they had great harmonies they had a lead singer with one of those great radio voices reaches out of the speaker and grabs you you know don henley has one of those voices linda and compelling voice the minute that he sings you know who it is and I, you know they tried to talk me out of doing it 
pure Prairie League's manager said, oh, you don't want to go down there. They'll forget about you. You nuts? I said, no, I had heard the demo of Help is on its way. I said, I'm going. I was just in Sydney last year, and I wouldn't know if it's the same as when you were there, but it's still vital musically. There's still so much going on. It's great. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's all different. But uh, Australia has always been an incredible music community for a long time with inferiority complex. Um, they suffered from one of their great historians, a guy named Jeffrey Blaney, a, a history of Australia, which he called the tyranny of distance. And Australians suffered under that tyranny. You know, it's 12,000 miles. Yeah. Come yeah. on. It's a long way away. And the English have had not always had a charitable attitude. They call them antipodeans, which comes from the Latin for underfoot, you hmm. know. And so they always have had a little bit of an inferiority complex. And I'm happy to say that uh, that's no longer the case. And going down there to producing those acts and all the acts that came out of there helped to establish them as a worldwide music force. Let's talk about children's music. That happened completely by accident, I got to tell you. David Geffen called me and he said, listen, I need help. I have signed The Simpsons. I said, wow, dude, I love that show. It's edgy. He said, I want you to go meet with Jim Brooks. We're going to do an album with the characters. I said, can these actors sing in the character voices? He said, well, we're going to find out. <laughs> he said, I said, you have to do it right now. And I, I told him the rule of three. I said, David, you know the rule of three? He said, what's that? I said, you can have it good, you can have it fast, or you can have it cheap. Take two, pick two. He said, I got to have it fast. I said, okay. And the reason he did was that Asylum was being, Geffen Records, I mean, was being distributed by Warners. And as of three months from the time we were talking, it was going to switch over to MCA, to Universal because of the label being sold there. And he said, I promised Warners this record as an out-the-door present. Uh, I said, okay. We got two studios going. We went completely nuts. The album sold three million. Go figure. We got David talked Michael Jackson into coming in and being involved. And he uh, produced, co-produced a single do the Barton Inn, which was a top 10 hit. Mm -hmm. We did all these fun songs with the characters. Two of the characters really could sing well in the character voices. Danny Castellaneta, the guy who did Homer, and Yardley Smith, the uh, lady who did uh, Lisa. And the rest of them did fine. You know, they all did okay. And we, we put out this fun album. And uh, so, of course, the next thing I knew, I'm getting cartoon calls. Uh, Ross Bagdasarian from the Chipmunks called me. I said, that, that sounds like fun. I did an album called Chipmunks in Low Places, which was all country records. I pulled in every favor I had. Uh, you know, I got Tammy Wynette involved, Waylon. Uh, Alan Jackson's manager was a friend of mine. I got him in there. Uh, Mary Martin helped me get Aaron Tippin. It, it was fun. And that album went platinum. Go figure. Wow. Then I did something follow-up the christmas album and then uh, you know then i got a call from sesame street you know i became mr cartoon i don't know how it happened but there i was mr cartoon and i did uh kermit unpigged and then i did elmo palooza 
both of which were big sellers. Elmo Palooza became uh, a TV special, you know, a DVD, a CD, a Grammy for that one. So it was a, uh, that was a terrific experience. It was part of it also because I had a daughter the right age. Suddenly I was a big hero oh. <laughs> in my daughter's eyes. It was great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Let's talk about the business for a second because you've seen the great changes through the years. I have. When you look at today's music business, what do you see? Well, obviously, it's still at the end of a tremendous flux period. I mean, professionally, uh, from I mean, technically, the linear recording is gone. We are solid. Say we're in hard disk, non-linear recording, fully into that. The CDs are on the way out. Delivery systems are by song now. It, you know, it's a complete paradigm shift. Uh, I'm, I feel fortunate to have been in the business in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. You know, it was a lot more fun than, let's face it. However, you know, music will endure. And I think things are just shaking out. My high hope is that bandwidth will increase, uh, which it is doing. I mean, 5G, it's going to take a while to get fully implemented. 5G holds a lot of promise. Of course, as usual, the companies are fudging what it is. You know, they aren't telling anybody what they're doing, really. But once millimeter wave 5G gets fully implemented, I think it'll take five or six years. I don't know what you think. You're pretty much an expert on this. You may be more of an expert than I am. Uh, but once we get full bandwidth, I think we'll have streaming at high, of audio at high bandwidth, not the bad codecs that we've got now. And I think everyone will have a... Uh, what looks like an iPhone, you know, it'll be a phone and a camera, but you'll dock it in your car. You'll put headphones in it. It'll be on the internet all the time. You'll be able to hear 2496 music streamed. Anything you want, anytime, you'll pay a subscription. There'll be various tiers of that subscription. You know, there'll be a freemium model. All of it will, will shake out, you know, and eventually I think within 10 years, we'll be back to a really robust and great music business. You know, it's funny you should mention 5G. I just finished an article for my blog minutes before I get on this call with you, and it was about the new Bluetooth LE standard that's coming. Do you know about that? I do not, and I'd love to hear about it. Is this in your blog? Can I read it? It will be. It'll be out on Friday, but... Bluetooth LE is sometimes called LE audio because it's strictly for audio. First of all, it's a, a low energy codec, but it's a new codec that's very high bandwidth that gives you much better audio, but it will allow for multi-streams. It will be built into all sorts of, of different things that are ear-related, earbuds, hearing aids, all sorts of things like that, but it's primarily low power consumption of a really high quality codec and that's the future but it's here believe it or not and now what's the uh, what's the uh, range is it still around 30 feet yeah that hasn't changed much so this is just for device to peripheral for the most part i think where this might actually be of real value is for home audio you know the big thing has always been how do i hide these cables you know, if you don't bury them in the wall, but now you won't have to worry about that because now you'll have fairly high quality without having to worry about the cabling. Uh, you have not heard the codec, I assume. No. 
So the question will be, is it, is it comparable to 2496 wave files? I don't believe so. It's going to be better than it is. It's not going to be there, though. 5G is still going to be better, I think, in the long run, but this will be here faster. Yeah, 5G is going to have to shake out. I mean, AT&T's got some 4G with lower latency. They're calling 5GE or something like that. You know, Verizon has this. They all have different ones. Uh, but we all know that millimeter wave uh, is the only one with the high bandwidth and has a short range. So you're going to need a lot more towers and a lot more development to get it to go through walls and stuff. Yeah. And, and during the interim, it's not going to be really good enough for 2496 streaming, I don't think. But, I don't, you know, I'm still looking into it. If you've got blogs on it, I'd love to read. I mean, I thought your presentation at NAM was terrific. Oh, thank I you. I learned a hell of a lot. A lot, hell of a lot of stuff I didn't know. And uh, believe me, I am no neophyte. So I, I really appreciated that. I did teach in music industry course at Citrus College for 11 years. I just retired 18 months ago. Uh, I used your book, Music 4.1, ah, okay. as one of the texts. The other, of course, is Passman. you got to have Passman. Sure, sure. And, and by the way, the latest Passman edition I found to be a, a, a really good improvement over the previous one. Let's talk about production for a second. What do you think makes a great producer? Well, uh, Jerry Wexler, when I interviewed Jerry, uh, I always thought there were two kinds of record producers. The What I call the obstetric record producer, uh, which is a guy who tries not to put his stylistic stamp on the music. He just tries to, if I can make a me metaphor here, he tries to deliver the brainchild, just like an obstetrician delivers the baby. You don't care whether it's a male or female baby. You just want it to be healthy and come out right, you know? Mm -hmm. And that's an obstetric producer. People like George Martin. People like, I like to think I'm that way, or Peter Asher's that way. Um, and then there's the author type, you know, the Phil Spector, notably, Lieber and Stoller. And, of course, current producers are very author-oriented. Um, they're basically artists, you know. They put different vocalists on there. But a Phil Spector record was a Phil Spector record. It almost, you know, all the tracks, the songs, was the same. We didn't care whether you put the Righteous Brothers or the Ronettes or whatever. You could tell it was a Phil Spector record. He was the author of those records the same way a film director can be the author of a film. Or he cannot. So I always felt there were two. Wexler thought there was a third type he called the archivist. And he was talking, of course, you know, about uh, John Lomax and his son, oh. Alan Lomax, who archived stuff. You know, they went around. They didn't just stuck a microphone in front of stuff. But I suppose that's a third type of record producer. And I always tried to be the obstetric type. And, you know, bands like Imagine Dragons and One Republic, those those kind of bands need an obstetric person because you don't want somebody interfering with what you're doing. Whereas people like Katy Perry and those people, they need an author type. Sure. There's uh, Bieber. He's got to have one of those producers. That's my thought on the current state of record production. I want to go there for a second. I interview all sorts of different people on this podcast and it goes through various generations as well. And one of the things I've noticed from some of the younger producers is the fact that they're irreverent in a good way of maybe the way we used to work because 
now a lot of it has to do with speed. Get it out, get it out fast. And there, there's one very well-known artist where they would record something in a hotel room and he would tell the engineer, okay, mix it and master it tonight. I want it out tomorrow. Totally in contrast to the way everybody used to work. Yeah, and that's just because of technological advances. There's more recording par- power in my MacBook Pro than there was in at Sunset Sound when I did an 8-track album with Ricky Nelson in 67. That building was worth over a million dollars. There's way more recording power in my MacBook laptop, which costs, what, three grand? Yeah. So it's uh, yeah, a lot of that is technology. When I think of a guy like, you know, Phineas and his sister, Billie Eilish, they actually are working in a bedroom. Yeah. You know, and those records are competitive. There's nothing wrong with them at all. Now, it's, it fits that kind of music, let's face it. You know, you still, if you're going to make a jazz record, you still want to put up mics and record people playing and interacting with each other. Same with classical music. So some of that stuff's never going to change over on that side. But pop music is going to evolve. And more and more, uh, let's face it, in 1877, Edison invented the phonograph. And from that time onward, music was changed because of the way it was recorded. Edison's first cylinders had between 500 hertz and 2K. That's it, with a limit of three to four minutes. And so the music changed that became popular to fit that. Let's face it, those the marches, the marine band, all that stuff was geared toward that acoustic recording. When they invented the condenser mic in the 20s, and that made Bing Crosby a star. He really couldn't have cut it singing into a horn. He didn't have the power but he was perfect for a condenser mic. So that music changed and so on and so on. And because you can record in a bedroom now, that changes the nature of the music. So we'll still have music that is music and gets recorded the way it is, the way it exists in a room. And you'll get music created on a technological platform that kind of dictates the way the music is going to go. One of the things that I do for some of my paying subscribers is there's a a video I do every month, it's uh, What Makes a Song a Hit, where I go in and I analyze it. And I take a current song, whatever the biggest hit is at the moment, and one of the things that I've noticed over the last year is how simple the arrangements are. And Well, the song form, first of all, has all changed. In many cases, there are no intros and outros, there's no bridges, there are many times there's no turnarounds. But the other thing is how simple the arrangements are. In many ways, it goes back to the 50s, where it's just the artist and the musicians playing and there is no overdubs. In this case, there are some overdubs, but they're relatively simple. And I find that refreshing when I think about it. You know, there's no more of these big layers that you have in there. That, and they make it work on a commercial basis, where you couldn't do that, you know, 10 years ago, for instance. No, I mean, a lot of that is, if you're listening on earbuds, that stuff comes off better than densely layered stuff. Yeah. Looking back, John, what's the biggest thing that you think you got right in your career? Our relationship with the artist. I think that for a record producer, that was, for me, the most important thing. Because you want to, and I go back to my metaphor of deliver the brainchild. You have to create an atmosphere with your artist that is conducive to them doing their best work. If you're not doing that, you're not doing it right. 
And to me, to have to to have learned that and figured that out, to me, I think was the the biggest breakthrough in my own personal career. You know, it took a while to learn that. Every coming in there, I wanted to write the songs and do everything. Here's what you need to do. And, you know, we're starting to work with Linda and the Dillards and those people. I realized those people have a vision and my job is to realize that vision for them. I think that's the most important thing I have figured out over in my career. Now, whether that fits the current artist producer paradigm, I'm not sure, but it certainly fits mine. Last question, John. What's the best piece of business advice that maybe you learned along the way or maybe somebody imparted to you? Well, you know, it's pretty cynical. You, you got to, the best business advice I got was to get a lawyer. <laughs> There's no question. I mean, the two biggest helps to my career have been attorneys that I've hired and I've had some great ones. Lee Phillips, Peter Paterno is my current attorney and my business managers who scare up royalties for me, you know, that I didn't know I had. Mm. Those are the, to be cynical about it, the best business advice I can is to surround yourself with the best minds you can on the business side. And my little soundbite on that is, uh, if you need a business skill, if you can't acquire it, hire it. You can find out more about John at greateasternmusic.com. That's greateasternmusic, all one word, .com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyowinnercircle.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyowinnercircle.com, or you can find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Play, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyownercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-in form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. <laughs>